So welcome back to the Story of Software podcast. And today we're joined by Ron Dannenberg, who's the CTO at Coleno. Ron, how are you doing today? Very good. Thank you. How are you? Really good. And I've very much been looking forward to this discussion because we're going to talk about how to build software collaboratively. And the title of the episode today is going to be From Single Player to Multiplayer. Just for a bit of context uh, for our listenership, so Ron is the CTO at Coleno, which is a company on a mission to help businesses streamline their credit control and collections processes. So it automates key credit control functions and uses intelligence on the channel communications to recover outstanding payments. Ron, to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about what made you pursue a career in technology? Sure, no problem. I mean, so it always felt natural to me, like among among different things, for example, my father in Belgium used to own a number of computer shops in the 90s. So he was very involved in the early days of the internet in Belgium. So since a very young age, like I've, I've seen family like being entrepreneurial, creating fun things. And on the computer, I just found it very easy because I had that exposure at home. Like I had the internet and I didn't understand my friends didn't. So like, you know, I always saw that as normal. And I think tech is a very easy way to try new ideas. It's very easy to iterate with very low early capital or help. Like you can do a lot by yourself for, for your MVP stage in a way. So it enables to create. And I think in general, like I like to create, you know, constantly improve, being open to, to innovation, discover new things, uh, which I think is the case for, for many techies, to be honest. Like they, you know, when you're a developer or, or when you work in tech very often, you, you can easily get bored of something and you want to discover a new technology, a new industry and product. So I was fortunate in general to travel and study, uh, work in different countries. So. You know, all of that structural education and, you know, the, the things I did on the side, I think it served me well. Um, was there something you learned from growing up in an entrepreneurial household that's been useful for you in your career and certainly in your current role? Because uh, I've heard a number of people talk about how beneficial it is if you, you have a parent who's involved in running a business because around the, maybe around the dinner table or the breakfast table, you're starting to get exposure to some of the challenges. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I think it's very right what you're saying. And it can be any type of business your parents have. If you see what, like one of your parents having a restaurant, for example, you probably will often go there after school or in the weekend and you will see them work. So I think it gives you that sense that work is part of life and it's not just Monday to Friday. That's why also, you know, that mentality of like on Friday, I'm looking forward to the weekend. It's like trying to escape. And I think there's something that your mentality that you have to think that work is just part of life like anything else. And Especially when you, when you see parents that have been entrepreneurs in one way or another, I think one important thing you learn is that if you don't do it, nobody will. And uh, good days and bad days always come. If you have a good day, a bad day will come. And if you have a bad day, and you know, a good day will come. That's, yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Ron, could you tell us a little bit about Paleno? Perhaps you could tell us uh, from your perspective where the whole idea came from and, and how the business has evolved. Yeah, so Dimitri was a friend I, I met eight, nine years ago. You know, we, we met almost every weekend for coffee. And for nine months, he kept asking me and showing me his progress. Actually, nine months every week. So I saw he was really serious about it. And I think that's very important. You know, he's one of the smartest person I know. He's uh, extremely social. So, you know, he's the kind of person you want to compliment you as a co-founder. And so he had the idea. And I do personally, in my projects, you know, also have a charity, etc. I'm the one in the background who does the stuff and there's someone facing who has the ideas and drive the whole project. 
and that's fine. And I think the problem with many people, they all want the fame, all be the CEO, but I think you need to know what you're strong at and just focus on that. So that's for the idea part. But in a few words, it's a, it's a platform to personalize and automate the invoice to cash cycle. So what does that mean? When you're a business, you issue an invoice, then you have to start collecting. Very often people will pay you late, so you have to run after them to pay across different methods of payments. And then once they paid, you need to reconcile your payments, which is fine if you have 10 clients. You just WhatsApp them, you know who they are, you know, they just wire you the money or you send them some random link. And then for reconciliation, you have 10 transactions. But imagine you have one, two, or 500 invoices a month. It starts being very complicated. That's what we do. We, we find the best time, the best content, the best channel to reach customers. It's, it's on each channel, right? So email, SMS, calls, WhatsApp, etc. We centralize all the communications in one place. So there's no like, okay, I'm, I'm going on holiday. Nobody can take over. I don't know what's going on. How do I work in a team to collect that money? And even you, you know, when, when you forget things, even if you have a phone call, you want to have that trustability of the phone call and what was being said. And then at the end, we reconcile the payments and the banking transaction. So I think all of this, you can see it more like we really give tools and reporting on how to allocate capital. I would just add that it's probably one of the most underappreciated skills in business. And it's unbelievably important because you can have the best idea, the best product or the best service. You can have great customers and great people. But if you're not collecting cash efficiently, you're going to have very significant problems that can actually cause your entire business to collapse. So when we were back in uh, Q1 2020 and the whole COVID thing was, was kicking off, when we were looking at like, what are the most important areas for us to focus on in the months ahead? Cash collection was actually the list. Like we have to make sure that we're efficiently collecting cash because it's the lifeblood of any business. Ron, I was wondering whether growing up in an entrepreneurial household gave you maybe a greater appreciation of the importance of this than maybe otherwise would have happened if you hadn't had that kind of background. Look, maybe it's always hard to judge oneself. Like, for example, I have five siblings, so people tell me like, oh, it's crazy, you are six, you know, like, how is it going on like that? But like, for me, it's always been like that. So for me, it's the normal, you know, like for me, when I see someone like one or two children, I find like that even a bit dull. But yeah, I think what you say, I mean, you know, you see you as artists, so you know that, you know, the PNL is nice, but, you know, it's not because you issue the invoice, you have the money. If at the end of the month, you don't have the money to pay the salaries of your employees, you're in big trouble. And it doesn't matter how much profit you're making on paper. You're absolutely right. Yeah, the P&L is beautiful until the cash doesn't arrive. So uh, it's a very critical area. Uh, Ron, I'd love to ask you about the technology challenges that you face at Coleno. What are some of the problems that you and your team are grappling with in that regard? Yeah, so, so I would say that there's three main challenges we face with the technology. Like the, the first at Coleno specifically. The first is that we connect it to a lot of different systems. And so we need to bring all of this in a, in a unified data format. So every company uses different systems. And even if it's the same system than another one, they use differently because every business is unique in some way. Or sometimes a lot. Usually the bigger the business, the more processes they have. And so the second is that synchronization across all those different systems. Because you always want to have one source of truth across everything. You don't want one system to show you receive a payment and another one doesn't. Or that you issue the credit note or that's a new invoice. And when you communicate to the client, you don't mention that invoice. And you start having information that is wrong or untrue. 
So like, because we connected to many different systems, for example, we connected to the European Central Bank for exchange rate. We connected to a various accounting platforms, open banking, uh, ACH processors, uh, email platform, Microsoft G Suite. We enable SMS phone calls. So you see like the list is very long, right? Like you probably already forgot the first few I mentioned. So you need to bring all of this together and make sure they work together. Like, I don't know, in the Olympics, you know, when you have these synchronized dances, you know, it's, it's kind of the things you, you want to have. And, and the things that you depend on, so, you know, if a webhook goes down in one of the systems, how do you react? If your server goes down even for a split second, like how do you make sure you haven't lost that webhook message? So you need to have that redundancy. Um, and so the third challenge, because I was mentioning three challenges, the first, the unified data format, second, the real-time synchronization, and the third, the redundancy. So yeah, I think, I think that's a key challenge. And, uh, you know, we also have lots of caching system for reporting, for statistics. But I, I think also like one of the key things is that it's very easy to say the user, oh, but they could just do one more step there and there. And then it might save you, you know, like two weeks or, I don't know, 600 lines of code or whatever. The user doesn't care what technology you use, you know, how complex it is or how simple it is. They just want something that works easily. That's very true. I've often thought that the graveyard of tech companies is littered with the beautiful code and wonderfully designed products. But uh, in the end, it's about does the product work for the user and does the product give a, a reasonable sense of delight to the user? But separate to these technical challenges, have there been particularly challenging moments for you personally in, in the tech sector? Because it's been a it's been an eventful 10 years or so. And uh, I'd love to understand, like, what have been some of the really kind of serious issues that you've had to grapple with and how have you overcome them in your career? I don't think I've had anything like serious. I mean, we I've always had that odd bug or that production system that goes down unexpectedly or having to work on calling the weekend to do something or some, you know, complex migration. But if I think personally, for example, years ago when I started working at uh, Hotels.com, so for the Expedia group, you know, I was hired as a big data engineer and my programming knowledge at the time focused on Java and NPHP. And also I didn't enjoy it at all personally. And so I did uh, fake it until you make it. So... You know, I started there, but I started learning Python all night weekends and, you know, start getting in a speed. I think it's good. You know, the thing that makes you the most uncomfortable are the thing that makes you progress the most, right? So, you know, it, it really pushed me to, to just learn by myself and do it. But if you ask me now in the company as a founder, we co-founder Dimitri, you know, we, we both left very good, high, high paid jobs to start a company. Because we really saw the gap in the market and we really believe in the idea, you know, and, and we, we both love doing that, you know, so we, we got everything in place and, you know, for all the founders that may listen to this podcast, you know, they know, you know, people will say, okay, just start. It's one thing to say, just start. It's another one to actually start. You need to put the right team in place, you know, set all the bases and starting with the blank canvas is the hardest, right? You want to find investors, but not any. You want people that match the criteria that you want. I, I think like the key, you know, it's a bit cliche all these things, but the team is very important, especially in the early days. For example, on the tech side, I'm a backend guy. So I called a front-end developer, an excellent one, Bart, who used to work with me in another company. So he's with us since day one. He's leading the front-end team brilliantly. And I, I think it's proved that relationships are super important. 
you know, a lot of people think, okay, I'll just apply to a bunch of jobs on jobs boards, but the relationships are much more important and they bring you much further, I believe. I couldn't agree more on that front. And Ron, I'd love to ask you about how, when you're scaling a team, you can avoid common mistakes that happen. Or maybe another way to phrase this question is like, what are the opportunities and what should be done when you're going from, let's say, a team of one engineer and suddenly you're adding more people to the mix, more wood on the fire? How do you make it all work coherently when you're obtaining that greater scale? In the early days, it's a lot of chaos, right? You can call it organized chaos, but it's still chaos. Um, so I think like, you know, every tech team where I work, even at Expedia, where I was part of the SEO team, I was the first techie. And so, you know, I understood that decisions you take at the beginning of a project will have a much bigger impact than, than you think. You know, there's that idea of technical debt and it's true. And, and the impact is so big, you know, if you don't, you know, think about them at the beginning, you know, like things like even the IDs in your database, if you do incremental IDs, okay, it's nice, it works, but it has these advantages. Like, you know, you, you can enter in collision if you write at the same time in the database. But if you don't do it at the day one, then you have a big problem. It's extremely hard to change, you know, the primary key in a database. Um, but I think on, on a human level, I think like don't be protective of your code. And what I mean like that, that it's a means to a goal not the goal itself. And when you're in the early days and you're the only developer, you know, your code is your project, you know, everything in it. But then you bring in more people, you need to teach them, you need to show them, they start touching stuff. So you need to put rules and guidelines of the way the code is written and accept to let go. You know, you do less hands-on to give responsibilities to others. You need to trust. Even if it's the first time, for example, you, you, you grow a team. But I remember in the early days, I was very worried of like, Okay, what will they break now? Maybe I should just do it myself. But that's short-term thinking, right? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Ron, are there mistakes that you and your co-founder would have made early on that you've learned from or anything you might have done differently? I mean, common mistakes, like accept to let go responsibilities. Something that's a bit paradoxical maybe is hiring too much and not enough sometimes you just you just hire people or you're thinking to hire people but you realize you don't actually need it's more like a convenience or not hiring not enough you know you're thinking oh it's fine you can manage and like something like agencies for example like yourself and my experience it can be a very good complement example for one-time project when there's something like quite complex don't bother, you know, don't bother. And, uh, you know, when I used to work in Switzerland, uh, I have a colleague who told me, uh, just throw money at the problem, you're in Switzerland. But <laughs> I think I think for many things, it's very true, you know, like if you can afford, sometimes you have a complex project, you just give it to someone else, you know, they, they can bang their head against the wall for it and deliver the project, you pay them for it and you don't waste your time and you get someone who's much better at it. So, you know, doing that and not getting the right tools are a mistake that, that the tools need to change as you grow. In the early days, you might speak over WhatsApp, but after you're a few team members, you can't do it. You need something else, you know. It's really the simplest stuff that are the, the hardest. Very cool. I'd love to ask you, what are the good and the bad aspects of entrepreneurship 
in your view? Because we have a lot of actual entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs who listen to our podcast. So I think many of them would be interested to know from your personal perspective, you know, everything in life has its positives and negatives. So when you consider entrepreneurship and what it's meant for your life, what have been the good things and the bad things? Yeah, I mean, I think from the, for the good things, I think that it's amazing to, to have that sense of building something. You feel, as soon as you, you feel you're on a project and you're a real part of it and you don't just execute, you know, what other people tell you. And, and that's why you know, we really want to have people who take ownership, who have an entrepreneurship mindset, at least up to a point, at least, and that they can, they can take ownership and just take initiative. And I think that freedom, which uh, maybe, you know, you, you can't have in many jobs, it's something that's limiting. So that's very, something that's very rewarding. And on the, on the flip side, that as an entrepreneur, as again, like, if you don't do it, nobody will, right? So it can be something like, okay, you're working always for your client or developing some new part of your product, but then somebody needs to take a look at your accounting. You know, you've got to do it. It's not fun, but looking at your HR stuff um, and entrepreneurship can have some stress. I think some people can get very stressed with it because uh, when something doesn't work, there's, there's nobody to call, right? You just have to do it. Yeah, I think when I speak to other folks who run companies, could be CEOs, could be co-founders of tech firms. Yeah. What they often speak about is that it can be, um, it can be a lonely place and that not everyone can relate experiences that you have when you run a business. Yeah, I think in feel lonely place. Fortunately, you know, like, I think also that's why many investors want to invest only in funding teams and not in single funders. All the single funders can execute very well. But I think that's one of the reasons, you know, like Dimitri and I are very different. We complement each other very well. And I think it takes the stress away. You know, he doesn't have to worry about anything product or technical. I know I don't have to worry about anything regarding sales or operations, for example. And also mentors. I found mentors very useful, you know, people in your network, not necessarily somebody in your industry or somebody who has the same skills as you, but somebody you trust who has some experience, a professional experience. And, you know, ideally someone who's not involved with your business and, you know, you can open up to them and discuss with them and find solution like a therapist would, in a sense. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's a, it, it, there's a therapy quality to it. <laughs> there really is. And I found it very useful as well, uh, speaking. And the point that I really agree with you in is ideally someone outside of your industry and not just for reasons of confidentiality, but, you know, someone bringing a wholly fresh perspective. I, I had a mentor back in Ireland who came from the very successful entrepreneur, but in the hospitality industry. So the, the challenges in our businesses were in some ways different, but in other ways, uh, very similar. It's like, you know, can you get access to talent? Can you bring people into your company as quickly as yes? you need them to cash flow, you know, credit control, all the challenges that businesses face. So absolutely, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Ron, I'd, uh, I'd love to close on a question where I ask you for some recommendations about podcasts, books, uh, anything that's a source of learning that enriches you professionally. I'm more of a reading person than a listening person, to be honest. Uh, but for, for books, like one book that I found amazing and is the Eiler Palmer, the, the CEO of Patreon, who uh, recommended it to me from Geoff Smart. And it's amazing. It's, it's, it's actually about recruiting, interviewing, 
uh, checking recommendation. Like with every book or everything, you know, it's amazing to take what's relevant for you, right? Um, you can never do everything. Otherwise, you know, you read 10 marketing books and you get conflicting advice. So you really have to take what's for you. But I really found that book really good. It helps you to understand how to get the right funnel of candidates for your company, how to direct interviews in a way you can make discoveries, um, to really understand the person's previous roles and what they want. You know, you want to discover like what you're interested in really is the hidden truth. So you really want to understand what if somebody says, yes, everything's fine. You want to go deeper than that, you know. And so, for example, one of the things of the interview is like never leave an interview without knowing exactly what the person did in their previous role. Yes, I was a Python developer, but what does that mean exactly? You know, what exactly were you working on? Who did you work with? Who did you interact with? What were the challenges you faced? What were your responsibilities? Did you manage your team like? You really want to go deep and then you discover things. Did I ask for, for the for the fun story? Like, you know, if I if they had any uh, any managers, for example, they would recommend that they uh, that they really liked and why. And the person said, uh, "No, I didn't like any of them." <laughs> like I can understand. Look, it's possible. You know, statistically, it's possible. But if you've had several managers, there must be at least one thing you liked in someone you didn't like. Yeah, that's a really interesting one because you look at that. Well, it's either all the managers or it's this individual, and it's more likely to be that individual that's somewhat at fault. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, one thing that I have always looked out for, and I, I agree with the point you're making, is how do people speak about their previous experience? Do they gravitate towards the positive things that they learned and gained and obtained from that experience that they had? Or are they thinking in terms of, you know, the time they were undermined or, you know, that they didn't get paid enough or, or something along those lines? You know, one thing that, it's okay for the person to say negative things about the previous role, previous co-work manager. Like, honestly, I have no problem with that, you know, but there's a balance and you need to justify it. Like, you know, sometimes when there's a good reason, it actually convinced me that person is good because they explained to me why it wasn't good. That's a fair point, right? So if it's the case that someone has high standards and, that, you know, they, they didn't like that, maybe those high standards weren't shared by colleagues, I can say fair enough to that. But when it's someone coming with a mindset of everyone's an asshole except me, I kind of, <laughs> it forces me to question, you know, what I'm hearing and whether it might have been, you know, a source of issues, et cetera. But um, yeah, the, the hiring part is really interesting. How are you finding hiring as artists? Really good. Um, I suppose it's gotten easier over the years because we hired really great people early on. And then those people are now interviewers. So this is an interesting one, right? So we, we put our best people from the engineering side of Zartis into interviews. And sometimes they ask me, it's like, I'm a great engineer. Why am I, <laughs> why am I you know, involved in four or five hours of interviews a week? And it's like, yes, you're, you know, you're among our best engineers. And, and we love that you build great software. But we also think that you're going to be a great judge of other great engineers. And also you're going to represent our brand to your ecosystem so we think putting great engineers into the interview realm is a really good thing to do so we got a bit of momentum after a while on the hiring front and and a lot of it came from that and we were i think lucky in terms of getting early hiring decisions right on the engineering front and then those people kept me very honest um, and what i mean by that is when we were building teams for for new client projects 
And those engineers that we brought in, you know, I'd be like, okay, we need to get the team built. And they'd be like, yeah, but we need to get the team built with the right people. So they were a major handbrake on me because I was like, well, the client wants the team now and the client wants everything moving ahead quickly. We're kind of saying, well, it's all going to take longer and be a lot more expensive and a lot more problematic if we don't get the, the hiring decisions right. So they kept the bar very high in our company, which has kept the overall strength and health of the company very high. So hiring is very, very critical. And in the end, you know, we spend the best waking hours of every day in work. It's like, you know, it gets us when we're at our best. So I think life being short in general, I think it behoves us to surround ourselves with people that we're going to enjoy spending time with. And I honestly believe that work should be fun. I think it should be enjoyable. People should laugh on a daily basis at work and people should find themselves challenged and it should be an opportunity for improvement um it should be a, an enriching experience in every aspect and if you're surrounded by great people it makes such a difference you'll have such a, a better life and even outside of work you're going to be a better person just from having those better experiences inside i i think the final point i i'd share with you ron is you know when i ask you about what are the good and bad of entrepreneurship or, or leading companies I think for me, uh, among the great things is that capacity to decide who you work with. And I think that that's, um, that's a huge advantage for anyone to have in life, to be able to kind of say, okay, I'm going to look for people that are dedicated and work with quality and maybe who come from different backgrounds to me. So they're going to know stuff that I don't know. Um, what a privilege that is to be able to, you know, shape a culture and give yourself those very enriching experiences. Absolutely. And Ron, I, I want to say a sincere thank you. It's been a really enjoyable conversation for me to talk to you today. And congratulations on the success of Coleno. Thank you so much for inviting me. You were my first podcast, the only one I will always remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you did it with us, Ron. And uh, yeah, I hope we can have you on again in the future. And um, maybe you'll be telling us about a successful IPO or, or something, uh, something equally impressive. With pleasure. Thank you so much. Fantastic. So production was by Adnan Tuchar with support from Albina Krasteva and Evan Sheehan with music from Robert Cooney. We'll catch you next time on the Story of Software podcast.